in life, we create a wake, and then they have a wake for us. The term wake is a fascinating term. Uh, it has several different meanings. It's both a noun and a verb, and it means several different things. I don't hear it used so much anymore as I used to. Wakes are a vigil held beside someone who has died. A wake is also a nautical term related to shipping. It's the waves created by the hull of a ship in the water. The wake of any ship creates waves in the water. Life is like a cruise ship. We start a particular direction and we create a wake that is behind us, that affects what is around us. We make decisions that forge a direction for our life as we go forward. Our life, just like ships, creates wakes. Not everyone's wake is the same. Then we die, and friends gather for what is called a wake. So I suppose life and all of its irreducible simplicity is wakes and wakes. And that's it. 32 years ago, in 1989, Stephen Covey, New York Times best-selling author, published his book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And he begins the book saying, start at your wake. Go to your funeral and walk around and listen to what people are saying. What is being said about you? What do you want to be said about you? Then go back and live with the end in mind. And that's the thesis for his book. Back up and create those kind of wakes in your life, and they'll say those kinds of things at your wake. What will they say at my wake? What will they say at your wake? There's nothing like death that stirs the memory and people will begin to reflect upon impact and the waves that our wake created. One question, question that this message from Genesis 36 asks us this morning is this, are we awake to our wake that we have created? By the way, what is your wake what is mine? Come with me to Genesis 36. Here we'll go three different directions this morning as we crawl into the history of Esau and how it speaks into the vein of our lives. We'll look at legacy this morning first. We'll watch Esau's legacy develop. Each life has a legacy. Secondly, we'll face the lie, and this is subtle. We need to think clearly the lie before us this morning is this. My decisions today have no impact upon others. I can do what I want. Other people are not affected. Finally, three questions that this text asks us about our own life. Now, to get into this chapter, please note with me, chapter 36, it begins like this. 
these are the generations of. Now, that is a key structural marker for Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis. If you look down in verse 9, these are the generations of. If you look at chapter 37 and verse 2, these are the generations of. It's a phrase and a group of words which means, we could translate it, this is what became of. You have this sweeping drama as Genesis begins. And it explains God's creation of the marvelous earth that we find ourselves in. And then you get to chapter 2 and verse 4. Here's a structural marker. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And what the phrase means is, whatever happened to the heavens and the earth. And so he's going to explain. And of course, he heads to the flood narrative. That's what happened to the heavens and the earth. This is a key structural marker. Look at chapter 6 and verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Well, let me tell you about this guy's family then. Chapter 10 and verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11 and verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. This is what became of Shem. You get to uh, 11.27. This is what happened to Terah. That would be Abraham's father. Then you get to verse 27. These are the generation of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. You get to 25.12, and it's talking about Isaac. This is what became of Isaac and his clan. 25.12, these are the generations of, oh, I'm sorry, Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian servants, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. And then you get to chapter 36. Whatever became of Isaac. Okay, we've got whatever became of the heavens and the earth. We've got whatever became of Noah. We got whatever became of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We got whatever became of Sham. We got whatever became of Ishmael. Whatever became of Esau. It's Genesis 36. It's about the legacy of their lives. So let's start there. Legacy. The wakes we create. Let me read the first nine verses. These are the generations of Esau. Or you could read, this is what became of Esau. In the middle of this story, we look at what became of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took wives from the Canaanites. Edah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basemoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Edah bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basemoth bore Reuel. And Ohalibama bore Jehoash, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. Hear word of the Lord. Now let's watch the development of Esau's wake, even from the substance of Genesis chapter 36. Remember, Isaac did bless him in 27. He lamented the fact that Jacob got in there first 
and got the blessing of the firstborn son. He said, Dad, don't you have a blessing for me? Isn't there anything left? And Isaac did bless his son, and he was certainly blessed. He, he became a great nation, and that's what's being chronicled in Genesis 36, that all of Abraham's offspring would be blessed. Now, there's two notions to consider in Esau's legacy. First, Esau built the empire of Edom. Esau becomes a great nation. You see that in verse 43. Magdiel and Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. The Edomites. The first five, five verses of Genesis 36 chronicled the five sons and how the whole history was wound up for the generations in these five sons that then move forward. The generations are off. Verses 6 and 7 describe an incident that will make us think about Abraham and Lot. Esau said, you know, I'll tell you what, our our cows are running into each other and our flocks are running into each other. I don't know if the land can sustain us. We're getting out of here. Now this departure, and by the way, it didn't work out very well for Lot. Remember when he departed from Abraham. Well, Esau says, hey, I'm going to leave the land of promise. Leave the land promised to our grandfather Abraham. And it was an expression of disrespect for the promise of God levied to Abraham. But he leaves. And he goes to the southern part of the, the, the Negev over against the Gulf of Aqaba to the land of Seir and the mountains of Seir. And they became the people of Seir. But reminiscent of Genesis 13, 6, it very much uh, Genesis 36, 7 sounds like Lot for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. It tips his hand a little bit in showing that in his heart, he was full of uh, the aggrandizing himself to all that he could and growing his empire to be as big as it could, even if it meant leaving the land of promise. According to verse 19 of chapter 36, it's obviously a well-developed civilization and society. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So they developed quite a bureaucracy and a culture of caring for others. This term chief is related to the number 1,000, and it was like they ordered the society in groups and had chieftains over them by the thousands, and it was really well developed. By the time you get to verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And so long before Israel ever had a king, Eden had a king, and they had chieftains over their thousands. So you have quite a thriving civilization that comes from one guy, Esau. He built quite an empire, and he has it all going on. A monarchy is established well before the king's of Israel. By the way, this chieftain term, the leader chieftains, it shows up nine times in verse 36, accenting their importance for their culture and history. He becomes a great nation. He has a great empire. And the empire would continue down to a group of people, of course, called the Nabataeans, uh, the Edomites through the years in the ancient Near East. And if you've ever been to Petra uh, and saw the magnificent homes and carvings that they carved hewn right out of the rock uh, 
That's Edom. That's Esau's people. And so it's quite a sophisticated civilization. Edom built an empire. Now let's talk about influence. This is the second thought to think about legacy. And by the way, who cares about legacy? But God cares about yours. And he cares about mine. And he cares about the legacy of his son, Jesus Christ, and how that's celebrated among his people and in the world that he created. Influence. We pass our heart idols onto our children. Influence. We pass our heart idols onto our children. Notice that Genesis 36 does not portray Esau as a rebellious, indulgent, sinful man. Not at all. Now, by the way, many of us have one gear in our transmission for rebellion. It's like Luke 15, the prodigal son. He lost all of his money and seared on our conscience and our understanding of what rebellion looks like is the prodigal son. And underneath of it is that word, that, the word the old fundamentalist preacher would use when he used the King James in Luke 15. He went out and spent his substance in profligate living. Profligate. Nobody ever knew what profligate meant, but you know the, the way he said it, you know, it, it, it must have been bad. And and we said that that's rebellion. It, it, profligate living, uh, indulgence. That's the only kind of rebellion. Do you realize that rebellion is polymorphous, many forms? It takes many forms. You don't have to be an indulgent person to be a rebel. You say Esau. I'll tell you what. That, that boy did good. Yeah, he did. If economic good is the only measure of good he lived his life as if God did not exist and had not blessed him through his father he lived a secular life not thinking about God I need to do it more than I do it recently I was speaking to a man in a gospel conversation and I pressed him gently hopefully attractively and he said you know I just don't think about that much at all. And I said, oh, you need to think more about that. It is actually an expression of rebellion, not only not to think about God, but not to recognize him as the giver of all things, including forgiveness offered in his son. And what does Psalm 2 say? The great posture before the living God is to bow down and kiss the sun. So what we see in Esau, in fact, if the Fortune 500 magazine had been published in the ancient Near East, I am sure that on one of its covers they would put Esau. He did great. And he was a rebel. A godless heart who prosecuted life accumulating stuff. Jesus told us, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can only have one Lord at a time. Who is your Lord? What is your Lord this morning? Whom do we serve? Numbers 14, 18 is an intriguing verse. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank God that he is. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. Thank God that he does. 
but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Hear the word of the Lord. Do you realize we pass on our heart idols to our children? The idols of the father become the idols of the children and become the idols of the grandchildren. Now, the grace of God, and this is what's glorious about the good news about Jesus, the grace of God can enter and break the chain. I had two grandfathers, that close, two grandfathers who were alcoholics. Wreaked a lot of havoc in our family. But God reached down by his grace and he saved my dad. And it changed everything. And grace always does. That's why it's amazing. It changed. By the way, what heart idol instincts are we passing on to our children? Luke 6.40, you know, when our children are young, they're preschool age, we're teaching them Bible verses. Maybe we get around to Luke 6.40, we teach them, everyone, after he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And it's really cute when they're preschoolers and we're teaching them that verse, everyone, as he is fully trained, will be like his teachers. Fast forward 12 years when our children have become fully groomed in who we really are. <laughs> we start going over that verse. Everyone, after he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. As soon as we finish the memory thing, we go get on our knees and repent because we see our shortcomings and our sinful tendencies that we passed on to our children. I was close to a family once, and, and I, I loved them. I was trying to figure out what made the family tick, and I pulled up next to somebody who really knew them well and knew the inside recesses of everything, and I said, hey, what makes that family tick? I said, oh, that's easy. Sex and sports. And at first I was startled. I found it a little jarring. I thought, wow. But then I started watching that family. And I realized that there were two hard idols in that family, sex and sports. And if you look at their lives, everything orbited around that. It's amazing, uh, the subtleties of rebellion. And we fold this stuff in our heart, and then we give it away to our children, unwittingly, unconsciously. We pass our heart idols on to our children. Now, let's face the lie. Secondly, let's face the lie. My decisions today have no impact upon others. There's a deep cultural vibe in this moment in American culture that goes like this. My life belongs to me. I can do what I want, and I don't care what you think, and it has no effect upon others, so you shouldn't care either. I can do what I want, and it doesn't affect others. The only problem is that's a lie. Because how we choose, our wakes run into each other. If you're in an inner tube and a big boat comes by, you'll eventually face the jarring effects of the wake created by the boat. So it is with the decisions that we make and those around us and how they are impacted. Life is like a canvas upon which we paint decision after decision. I've used before the illustration of painting by number. I didn't do it too much. I wasn't very good at it as a child because I was really impatient. And as soon as I would, you know, use color number one, which was red, you know, I'd want the picture to be done and I'd get in a hurry 
And, you know, it looked nothing like the face of the box when I was done. You, you have to be patient and take it a stroke at a time, one, two, go down that color palette. But if you are patient and you take it a stroke at a time, what will emerge over time is the cumulative effect of the strokes you made over time that makes the whole picture. A decision at a time, a minute at a time, as you and I day by day live our lives, there emerges for us a life wake, a, an emerging picture that becomes self-evident over time if we stay with the strokes that we are using. By the way, what does your picture look like this morning? What does mine? What do we want it to look like? This message asks us, how is the painting going where you are? You see, we influence others by how we paint. Proverbs 20, 11, even a child is known by his doings. And this piece of wisdom from the Jewish uh, library in Proverbs is saying that, of course, adults have a reputation. But even children have a reputation. Even a child is known by his doings. Andy and I happen to have the world's greatest five-year-old granddaughter who started school this year. Now it's so fascinating to talk to her about what's going on. And I ask her, Vivi, where's your desk in the room? Well, she told me where it was. Then I said, Vivi, has your desk always been there, or have you changed seats since school started? She said, I changed seats. I go, oh, you did. Vivi, why did you change seats? And she began to describe a young man in the class, a burgeoning ne'er-do-well who was in the back, who was ordered by the teacher to immediately get to the front of the class and sit down so that he could be near her authority. And Vivi took all this in and realized what it cost her was that desk she had from the first day, and now she's in another place. Um, even a child is known by his doings. Now, by the way, we influence others by how we paint on this canvas. The influence can be either good or bad. Thank God for great influences that cast a shadow of motivating glory to follow our Lord. Andy and I were in Charlotte at a great church once, and we met a guy who was a friend of the host family we were with. And he had spent his life in Ethiopia with SIM, uh, formerly Sudan Interior Mission, now serving in Mission International. They're all over the world. And uh, he had five sons. I think four of them were still in Ethiopia. In 2009, I taught for six, seven weeks at the uh, Theological College in Addis Ababa, and I was staying in a guest house at, uh, for SIM, and I ran across this guy, and there were always people coming in and out of the guest house, and this guy comes in, and he's just neck deep in ministry activity in Ethiopia, and I sit down with him, and, I, and we started talking, and I realized I had met his dad in Charlotte before. And as we began to talk, he said in kind of jocular speech, just alluding to it, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a part of the family business. And we laughed because we both knew what it meant. And what it meant was his dad 
his heart beat for God's work in Ethiopia. And as those little boys growing up in that home heard the heartbeat of their father, it cast a shadow in their lives. And he was a part of the family business. He couldn't recover from that. And there he was, neck deep in the latest project he was involved in, in Ethiopia. We influence others by how we paint. How's the painting going? Now, three questions probing our development and the development of a Christ-honoring wake. What does Esau's empire building have to do with our lives today? Three questions. Number one, and it's just pretty basic, but it's very important. Whose empire are you building? Whose empire are we building? That peel away from Jacob, his brother, in the promised land, was an attempt to financially gain and not have the growth of his business squelched off by proximity to his brother. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. We can only seek one kingdom at a time. John the Baptist is introducing Jesus in John 1. John 1, 37 and 38 comes after John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John 1, 29. And so when they looked around, some of the followers of John the Baptist said, There's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. I'm going to follow him. So they, they start following Jesus. And as they were following him, Jesus turned around and he asked this question. And he asked us this morning as well. It's, it's a little jarring. You think, hey, they're following him. Yeah, he should say, hey, give me a high five. You're, you're going the right way. You're following. No, Jesus looks at him in John 138, and he says, he, 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 I want to make sure I get the question right. He says, what are you seeking? By the way, what does your life say and the habits of your life say about what you are seeking? What are you seeking? seeking. Remember the Lord's prayer? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That pronoun is very important. Your name, your kingdom, your will. How many of us, if the truth were known in our hearts and even how, how we live and exercise our will, we, we, we appreciate my kingdom come, bless my kingdom, Lord. Uh, my will be done and help my name to be great. And the Lord's Prayer turns that all the way around. Whose empire are we building? How much are you investing in your kingdom? How much are you investing in the kingdom of our Lord with time and talent and treasure and resolve to live? What are you burning up the energy of your life on? Your kingdom or his? Esau burned it all up on himself. Now, secondly, are we willing to wait for the great day to let faithfulness play itself out? I'm sure as Jacob looked across the valley and saw the prosperity of Edom and the development of the culture, he might have said to himself, I wonder if following the promise of God and staying here 
in the land of promise is the right way to go. Remember Psalm 73? The godly man looks out over the wicked and he says, is it worth it? Is it worth my resolve to follow the Lord? Look at it. There's no pains in their death. They don't suffer. What's going on? Dalich, the commentator, said this, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. As the Spirit of Christ works in our hearts and makes us more like Jesus, it takes a lifetime to develop the virtues of Christ. You can get rich over a short period of time. Are we willing to wait for the great day to let faithfulness play itself out? Now, by the way, the telling great day is not our 10-year high school reunion. Nor is it college graduation, nor marriage if God allows marriage. It's not the service pens that we accrue from work, the civic accolades. It's standing before God on the great day in the end. I remember talking to my neighbor one time, coming away really flummoxed. Um, he shocked me, actually. He was younger than me by, I don't know, at least 10 years. He's never retired. Um, I was talking to him, and I don't even know how we got onto it. And he says, yeah, I put away $100,000 for my son and $100,000 for my daughter for their college, and we've taken that... We've Got that all cared for. I think his son was in the fourth grade, and his, uh, his daughter was, I don't know, in the first grade. And I start walking back to the house thinking, how did he do that? What world does he live in? How does that work? And I, I, I still love the guy, but the habits of his life are different than mine. And the things that he values are different than mine. And by the way, that was well before we even started into college. And Andy and I, I remember when our kids were like five, three, when the kids were very young, I can't remember exactly. We have three children God gave us. We met with a financial advisor and he says, what are your goals? And... Um, because God had blessed Andy and me with being able to graduate from college without debt, we said, hey, here's a goal. We, we, we want our kids to graduate from college without debt. That's a, that's a goal. Oh, I said, that, that's easy. Here's how we'll plan for that. And, and the layout of the plan was, um, you know, put this chunk this year and this chunk this year and this chunk this year. We said, thank you so much and left. And we didn't laugh until they left because we knew there was no way possible for us to put away what he wanted us to sock away for there. And yet as I stand here, I want you to know that God has been so faithful and in ways that were astonishing to us, including Andy going back to school to be recertified to teach after our children were, um, you know, up and out. And we thought, we'll get a teaching job. That's how we'll do it. And we couldn't get a teaching job. And all we could get was a job for her in the library at Cedarville. Didn't realize it came with, tuition remission along the way and our three kids graduated without debt but as I stood there talking to my neighbor and he told me that I thought man Yahweh driver is able to provide 
and he's not inhibited by what the ways that we think. And if we'll just follow him, what does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. Lastly, are we launching children from the foundation of our family's commitment to gospel Christianity? There's a pattern in the first century when they wrote a biography. There's two volumes. Volume one is the story of the person. But they didn't stop there. And it's interesting. They had volume two. That was the story of those they influenced the most. So Luke takes up that biographical pattern, volume one, the gospel of Luke. That's the story of Jesus. Now, volume two is the story of who Jesus influenced. And he, he influences his followers. That's the gospel, or that's the book of Acts. Because you can tell who Jesus was by seeing how Jesus influenced others because those are the men that, Acts 17, 6, turned the whole world upside down. Now, I want to concede to you this morning that the race is not always to the parental swift. I've known some godly parents who poured their life into children and who raised hellions. We do not hold on to their will as they launch 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and they finish their lives. We don't hold on to their wills. You know that. But I've also watched another phenomenon. That is godly family who loved the gospel and gave priority to gospel nurture, releasing godly kids who went on in adult life and lived wonderful lives. So I'm not ready to give up on looking at adult children as a reflection to tell what the home life was like. Because God does honor nurturing our children. Let's launch well, focus, gospel-centered, Jesus' kingdom folks who are cranking out kids who go for the long haul of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. They join Christ in building his empire through their home and in their neighborhood and at work and in the community and at school, on their sports team. Are we launching children from the foundation of our family's commitment to gospel Christianity? When it's over, what will be your legacy? What will be mine? If it's over tonight, what would it be? If we're going to have another 10 years, what is God saying to us? If we have another 40 years, what's God saying to us? If we get up in the morning thinking about Christ's legacy, we'll do well every day. If we get up working on our kingdoms, well, in the end, it'll be a pile of disillusionment and disappointment, even if we gain the whole world. May God empower us with gospel life such that our legacy would bring glory to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. Oh, Father, I pray. It's so easy to preach. But I pray that the witness of our congregants would be that Jesus is beautiful and commitment to him is worth it and life comes to its 
flourishing full in knowing him and following him. Lord, in this song, probe our hearts and call us through repentance to the very places you want us to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Say